Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's trusted financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. The NerdWallet Smart Money Podcast has helped me plan for my tax bill so I don't dread April every year balancing my budget for this show, and helping me financially plan for my next adventure. You can listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Rodeo season is going to be kicking off soon, and you know, I, I like the rodeo. I like going to the rodeo. I like going to cattle auctions and all sorts of those activities, and I want to look the part while I'm there. I love Tecovis as my go-to boots company, and if you've ever been in one of their stores, it's an amazing experience. Their motto is don't go gently. They are my favorite cowboy boot, and they bring a fresh perspective to heritage boot making, and they carry forward all those time-honored traditions and quality you will find in a great pair of cowboy boots, but they're innovative on comfort, style, and service. They have Western boots for men and women and are handmade from the most premium leather and follow over 200 time-honored individual steps in their boot-making process. Pretty cool. They're Austin-designed, Texas-tested, and handmade. And if you want to go to one of their stores, it is an amazing experience. They take customer service to a whole new level. But if you can't make it to a store, Tecovis delivers the most premium quality and most comfortable Western goods right to your door. Visit tecovis.com. And as a special opportunity just for you listeners, Tecovis is going to throw in their best-selling trucker hats or a ball cap for free into any purchase over $100 at tecovis.com. Just use the code ADVENTURE at checkout. Again, that's Tecovis, T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com, and use the code ADVENTURE at checkout to add a free hat to your order over $100. Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. We're getting out a little bit late today. That's because I uh, had a really, really cool adventure this weekend, and I got home a lot later than I expected, but it was the first pretty pretty good adventure. I mean, it was a weekend long, so not crazy. No, nothing like the guest we're talking about today with Mackenzie Barney, but it was the first one I took my son, my four-year-old, on, and I was a little worried. Uh, two nights of camping, two days of paddling. And, well, really two and a half days overall. I mean, it was basically Friday after work till Sunday night, and he did awesome. He loved it. It rained. It was storming. It was, we, we got a little bit of everything, and it wasn't, he didn't hate it, which is great. And we eased him into camping about over the last year and a half or so. Uh, and the first time, just so you know, the first time he went camping, he absolutely couldn't stand it. We tried again, then he loved it, and he's loved it ever since. So it's taken some practice, uh, but it's really exciting because uh, we, we saw all kinds of cool stuff. I'll do more of a recap on it because I want to talk about some of the ways I'm able to get out there a lot, uh, as often as I do, to go do small micro adventures uh, like we talked about with Alistair Humphreys in a recent episode. Um, but speaking of Alistair Humphreys, we're, we're having someone here who, who's been heavily influenced by Alistair, Mackenzie Barney, who just got back from a three-year bike around the world. It was 
18,000 miles, 28 countries, and five continents. And it started off, well, she started it without realizing she was going to do all that. And so today we're going to listen just to a little bit of McKinsey's story. But if you really want to dive in, you really want to learn more and really see what she saw, her film comes out February 1st, so just in a couple days, at cyclingtheworldfilm.com. You'll be able to learn more about watching it there, but cyclingtheworldfilm.com. Enjoy the story in whatever you're doing, but if you have a free night later this week, Thursday or later, or next week, sit down, watch this film. She is a four-time Emmy award-winning producer, published writer, speaker. She tells great stories, and so I know I haven't watched the film. It's been on tour recently. Uh, and I learned about it through someone that went on tour or went to go watch one of the screenings, my friend Carlos, uh, who we've had on the show, the the single track samurai here in Florida. Uh, and he's like, man, this is such an awesome story. And I'm like, we should have Mackenzie on the show. So here we are. I, I've heard amazing things about the film. So go check it out. But enjoy these stories. I hope it inspires you. And I hope you are excited about how this year has gone so far as we enter the second month. All right, let's go ahead and dive in. Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. You heard a little of Mackenzie's story in the intro, but we're going to welcome Mackenzie now. Mackenzie Barney, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great yeah, to be here. That's awesome. Where are you coming from? So I don't live anywhere. I'm actually uh, on tour right now for my film that I'm sure we'll talk about, but I am in the U.S., so that's good. I'm visiting some family in Florida at the moment. No kidding. Uh, can I ask where in Florida you are? George Jacksonville. Yeah, pretty small world. That's awesome. Is that is that where you are from? I'm from Seattle originally, but I actually went to University of Florida. So I'm not sure if you're a Gator or not, but uh, or a Gator fan. But yes, not too far over in Gainesville is where I went to school. I played soccer over there. And then not long after, uh, my parents actually moved down here. So I'm actually, um, I just swung by, uh, like I was amidst my tour. Um, and then I will be going to Mexico next. So my partner, James, and I like to go down to Oaxaca, Mexico. Um, so that's the next stop after this. I'm very excited. <laughs> any, uh, any film tour stops that down there? There's not. I'm sort of taking a little bit like October was absolutely jam packed with film tour stops. Yeah, pretty much every two or three days. Um, so November and December, actually, uh, James has a book coming out uh, about our Africa portion. So we're self-publishing that. And then I'll be doing a bunch of online events. So not in person. Um, but yeah, Oaxaca, Mexico is an opportunity to just relax a little bit and do some more remote work. Um, I, was, I was curious about the connection to the University of Florida and why you screened it there. But that makes a lot more sense now. That's awesome. <laughs> um, well, take us through a little bit of kind of pre-biking the world. You didn't start there. You first started on foot. Did you grow up in an outdoorsy home or a place that, or in a, or in a home or in a community that, that appreciated adventure? Not for, like really when I was growing up, it was more based around traditional sports. So I come from an athletic family. My dad played a few sports in college um, and 
Uh, I'm the oldest of three. My brother and sister also played college sports. Um, sister was a soccer college athlete. And then my brother played football. So very much traditional sports upbringing. Um, but that kind of set the framework and the foundation in a lot of ways for me. Um, very very relevant, I think, to adventure um, in terms of what you can extract from sports early on and the discipline, commitment, self-belief, you know, a lot of those intangibles that come from it. Um, but what happened is I actually uh, was moved around a lot as a kid. Uh, my parents kind of took on any new opportunities to see different parts of the country. And the most formulative years for me were in Seattle, Washington. So when I'm say when I say I'm from Seattle, it was about 13 years there that I was in Seattle before college. Um, and because I was so close to the mountains, the Cascades, that's where I started to get this affinity for nature and the outdoors. So I owe a lot to my Seattle roots. Um, and that's kind of where everything spurred, I guess, after I played soccer in college. Then I started to look towards more of the unconventional sports, adventure, adventure travel. Um, and actually, the, the start of it all was uh, film for me. I actually used film as a vehicle to <laughs> be able to explore my curiosities of through hiking. So I really wondered, um, you know, what were these like month to month to six month long trails where you could walk the entire lengths of countries or continents? What were these through hikes? Um, and I, I utilized film as a way to pitch a documentary <laughs> on my very first through hike, which was in New Zealand. And at the time, it was the world's newest through hike called the Tiareroa Trail. Um, and uh, that was founded in 2011. And I think we hiked it in 2015 and got outside television on board. And I think 14 different outdoor industry sponsors uh, before Instagram was really big. Uh, so this was, it was all kind of new territory pitching how to trade content for gear. And then we had a funding partner and kind of just was able to make this thing, make this thing happen, an original content project. But for me, it was a way to satiate the curiosity of what is through hiking. Um, so that's kind of how well-rounded everything was from traditional sport to more unconventional adventure travel, but, and getting into human powered travel specifically. Wow. That, that could obviously, you could spend a lifetime through hiking. Uh, there are people on this show that have. We've talked to tons and tons of, you know, triple crown finishers and folks grading their own routes in a lot of ways or just kind of pioneering new new places to through hike and new routes. Um, what led you to eventually put two wheels underneath you? You know, <laughs> I don't know about mm -hmm. you, but I, I we hear from a lot of people is once you go to wheels, it's hard to go back. It's like, oh my God, I can carry, I can carry an entire jar of peanut butter or I don't have to cut holes into my toothbrush or cut the tags off my shirt or just a number of things. Uh, what was it about the two wheels that drew you in and so far haven't gone back? Yeah, it's a great question. What made me increase the cadence, right? Um, well, I first very much fell in love with through hiking and I have to give such a nod to the footpaths of our world. So, you know, I mentioned the first one was over in New Zealand, the Tiaroa Trail. But from there, I went and solo hiked a lot of the Greater Patagonian Trail. I did many over in the Himalayas um, and in the Indian Himalayas and the Nepali Himalayas. Uh, and then, you know, Pacific Crest Trail in our backyard here in the U.S. and then the Colorado Trail. And I love exploring the world 
on my own two feet and knowing the minimal amount of things that you essentially need, right? So it's not that I wanted to necessarily graduate from that or to evolve from that. It was just that I wanted a, a way to get me closer to far off cultures. So through hiking, I think for me, I found the value in through hiking is you're able to immerse yourself further into nature and create this relationship with yourself in nature. Uh, but then bikepacking or bicycle touring, whatever you want to call it, traveling by bicycle allows you to go at a faster cadence, a faster speed, and also to access cultures and see different cultures around the planet. So there was like a, a bit of a transition there where I kind of wanted to see what this other mode of human powered um, adventure travel could could get me to. And uh, if I even enjoyed having that that next speed up, right? Because I think one of the beauties of through hiking is that you slow everything down. Not only do you strip every single identity layer of who you are, right? Like, let's just talk about through hiking for a second. You give up your house, your car, your job, your loved ones. You even give up your name. You give right. up every essence of identity, right? And you strip it all down to the basics. And then you build up what you, what you need. And you actually almost reinvent yourself too. And you find out who you are. So that is something that I love. And I don't think I will ever not through hike. I think that's something that I'll always constantly revisit. But when it came to wanting to see, you know, more of the corners of our atlas, I did want to kind of up the up the speed. And that's where the bicycle, I just wasn't sure if I would like it. So to start, I just literally flew into Vietnam with only the clothes on my back, total through hiker move, right? You throw yourself into the fire and you see what happens. Uh, and I bought a used mountain bike for $150 in Ho Chi Minh, Vietnam. And, uh, and from there, I just started pedaling. This was completely alone. I had sandals. Um, I didn't even bring a tent for Vietnam, by the way. I just didn't even know if I would like this mode of transport of bikepacking instead of through hiking. So I was just like, okay, I have a 30 day visa. Let's see if I can get to Hanoi. And by the time I got up there, I had interacted with so many locals and immersed in just the daily lifestyle. I realized how different it was from through hiking in that you're not in nature. You're not separate from civilization and society. But the beauty is that you're within society. It's just you're, you're experiencing it as if you have to earn the miles, earn the experiences, earn the conversations, immerse in the local culture. And I found that it gave me this different perspective than through hiking did. Hmm. How, how did you like the speed? Did it satisfy that desire to, to go faster? Yeah, it's, it was always a working relationship with the, the speed of how, how fast I wanted to go on the bicycle, right? Because it's like, do you do 12, 14 hour days? Do you um, optimize every hour of sunlight? Or do you stop and enjoy a tea with the locals and enjoy a meal with the locals and maybe stop early for sunset? You know, it's, it's always this like this balance. So for Vietnam, I went slower. I think I did like eight or nine hour days um, because I just wanted to work into it. But then let's like fast, fast forward, like fast way forward to Australia, where I went to prove something to myself in terms of what I could accomplish endurance wise on a bike, because I had been hearing about ultra races and endurance feats and everything, you know, so I wanted to satiate that, how far and how long and how 
can I make it across all of Australia in 30 days? So that's where I really kind of turned up the speed. Uh, but then I turned it, dialed it back down for like, let's say South America, where the Andes made it so that I couldn't do huge mile days and 12 hour days because of uh, the lack of sunlight, the weather and the altitude. So it was different on every single continent. You know, this was a journey of five continents and 28 countries, 18,000 miles. And it took around three years chipping away at it little Gosh, by little. That is wild. That is wild. Now tell us about, um, this sounds very similar. One of my good friends and who I literally just interviewed like two hours ago. I think you follow him, Alistair Humphreys. Of course. Um, okay. Of yeah. course I follow good friend Alistair. Of the show. I literally got off the phone with him. I mean, adventure icon and especially in the world of bike packing and bike touring, his, his whole world is micro adventures now and moving towards the small. And it's really interesting to see how everyone's adventure journey is just so different. So I don't know why I brought that up. I guess this is just this multi-year, three years, very reminiscent of his first big adventure being the four-year trip around the world uh, that kind of kicked off his whole career. Tell us about how this adventure for you, the one thing I want to dive into is how intentionally unsponsored it is. You know, a lot of people that I know that say this is intentionally unsponsored is one, because they can't find a sponsor. So they just say it's intentionally unsponsored. You though have that experience. You filmed with these big Nat Geo and outside and you, you had that kind of experience. Why do it this way? And what, what were you kind of looking forward to with, with approaching it this way? Yeah, it's such a good question, Mason. So I do first have to give a nod to Alistair. I'm so glad that you just interviewed him and that you brought him up because Alistair was one of my main inspirations uh, for this entire ride. So uh, his books, his four year around the world journey, you know, it, I, I want to say it was something like 40,000 miles. I mean, Alistair is an absolute legend and he has, I know he has carved the path and inspired the path of so many bicycle travelers. So I have to give, um, I'm also in communications with Alistair and I have to give him like a huge thank you, um, for, for starting the ripple effect. Right. So to answer your question about why I wanted it unsponsored, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But if it wasn't for people like Alistair or Lael Wilcox or Jenny Graham, who currently holds the FKT for women, uh, who just came out with a book, if it wasn't for these travelers before me sharing their stories, it would have never inspired me to want to tell my story. Like I, at the end of this, I felt this like very heavy responsibility to continue this ripple effect. Because if it wasn't for Alistair writing those books, I don't know if I would have felt empowered or even had the idea to do this. So that's kind of kind of bringing it full circle to Alistair and, and to why, I, why I'm telling this film and want to write a book and telling these stories about my trip. It's because of people like him to continue that ripple effect. But um, when it came to this trip, uh, okay, so with the New Zealand through hike, I had mentioned that I had that sponsored. I had a media partner. I went the full sponsorship route and it was, it was an incredible experience and it's an incredible documentary. You know, people can watch it on Amazon, but it also taught me that by involving sponsors, uh, and other companies that have skin in the game, it does change the trip. Of course it does. Right. Um, it, it changes the storyline and it, it changes 
your whole outlook every day. Like I can remember stopping on zero days and sending deliverables to different sponsors or having to do interviews. So that really changes the trip. And I'm not saying that that uh, is good or bad. I'm just saying it's different than let's say this approach of after New Zealand, I had then started a production company with two of my best friends. We had been telling a lot of documentaries with Nat Geo, and um, it was just an incredible opportunity to travel the world and make documentaries. Um, but I also had this, this feeling like I was a storyteller who didn't yet know my own story, or I was telling other people's stories when I didn't even know my own. And I think that's really important as a storyteller to know your own voice, as an artist to know your own voice, right? Um, so upon recognizing that, I just sort of uh, left the company, I left filmmaking as a whole, and I went traveling, right? I kind of stripped it all away to see who I was. Um, and like a lot of great explorers do, sometimes you go traveling when you need answers. Um, and I knew I loved human power travel, but that's when I changed to the bicycle. And I didn't realize it at the time, but this three-year journey was this unraveling of who I am, um, who Mackenzie the story is, I guess, uh, not just Mackenzie the storyteller. Um, so the reason that I didn't get it get this film or this three-year journey sponsored. Like this was entirely self-funded. I stopped and worked on a farm along the way, wrote stories along the way. I wanted it to be uninfluenced and organic um, for myself to have this like pilgrimage or this walkabout of sorts, right? That's, that's essentially what this was. Um, but then also as I started to realize that I was making a film because I had no intentions of making a film of this, um, my, my friends and family in Africa on our Cairo to Cape Town ride, they started to ask, well, what's Africa like? And really the only way I knew how to explain it was to start pulling out my camera. So in Africa is when I started to film. And then uh, as I continued uh, down New Zealand, across Australia and up South America, the solo legs of my trip after Africa um, and started to pedal towards 29,000 kilometers of cycling the world. That's when I started to really realize, oh, this is something that I want to film. This is a story I want to share, but I want to make sure that it's unaltered. I want to make sure that it's a storyline that I can allow to unfold and unravel. And sometimes when you have sponsors or other stake in the game, right? Um, they want to know what's going on. And without even knowing at the time, subconsciously, you might be changing decisions you make to satiate a sponsor. So I really wanted this to be something that was self-made, um, and I kind of continued with that theme. So it was a self-funded trip. Uh, it was self-shot. The film then, I had, you know, I had this film thousands of hours. And I'm like, well, I guess I better get editing. Because this theme of it being self-made, I was like, well, I guess I'm the editor. <laughs> you know, I guess I'm, I'm the writer. I guess I'm the director. And this was all intentional to make it so that I could then take my film that I knew I had created um, and the story was unaltered, right? Uh, and then I started to tour it around the U.S. So I just got done with about 10 events around the U.S. And, you know, called up some, uh, the, the Radivus got on board and called up some other great 
bike bike packing brands and um, just tried to continue this theme because I think in today's world, uh, we can get a lot of things sponsored, right? But uh, it's almost harder. It's absolutely harder uh, to try and do a lot, a lot more of uh, creative ventures yourself. Um, and it's challenging. Super challenging, but that's that's kind of where the un, unsponsored, uninfluenced side of it came from. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. The iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with robust materials and integrity, and the capability is legendary. Whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions, the Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Durability has been tested to the extreme. Cargo capacity means you have room for all your gear. All this meaning to drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. And there's also powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system to keep you connected. And also the innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. And the entire Defender family is ready for a wide range of adventures. They have the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. So push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell anything online at every stage of your business. From the launch your online store stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we just hit a million dollars in revenue stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're a podcaster trying to sell merch or selling autographed sports memorabilia, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one commerce platform to their personal POS system, Shopify has got you covered. Now, I do use Shopify with my day job. That's our website and that's our platform. It's so handy. It makes it easy for us on the back end. It makes it easy for you as a shopper and as a customer to sell more. And they can help you all the way from those early, early days until you're a real business, making real money. And that's what I love about them. No matter how big you want to grow, they can grow with you and help you take control your business to get it to that next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ASP, all lowercase. Again, go to shopify.com slash ASP to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash ASP. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. It's a little bit hard to choose which part of the adventure to dive into and to talk about. There's so I, every single leg of the journey is its own book, I'm sure, you know, full of information and stories and people and, and experiences. How much of the journey when you started did, did you know you wanted to do? And if not anything, how did you know when it was over? Hmm. Well, when I started, I only wanted to do Vietnam. And when I finished Vietnam, I said, okay, I just accomplished a country by bicycle. How about a continent? Uh, but in between there and Europe, we had this little thing, this hiccup called the pandemic. Uh, so I had a lot of time to think about, you know, all of us really did think about our purpose and 
what was important to us. And the second that Europe opened up, I knew I wanted to start at Istanbul, um, the bridge between Asia and Europe. And at the time, I thought I would only get to do a loop in Eastern Europe and come back to Istanbul. But uh, so this was 2021. Yes, 2021, summer of 2021, Western Europe started to open up. So I just kind of created my path as I went. And I said, oh, looks like in six weeks, I can get up to Amsterdam in the Netherlands. And so I completed Europe. Uh, thankfully, that timing worked out in 2021 in six weeks. And then um, I knew, so going to Europe, I knew that Africa was next. And I used Europe as a precursor to Africa because Africa was, <clears throat> excuse me, Africa was a, uh, an opportunity to share a whole experience with my partner, with my boyfriend, James. Uh, and then I used Europe as a way to prove myself on my own two feet. So uh, James went over to the Stans and was doing some traveling over there in Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, um, Uzbekistan. And uh, we had about six weeks before our Africa cycle. So I said, okay, I'll start in Istanbul and see where I can get. And this was all solo. Um, so I wanted to make sure I enjoyed bikepacking alone. I could fix mechanicals alone, which definitely happened. And that um, I, I was comfortable with wild camping alone because just like with through hiking, I think even when you're going, if you're going on a through hike with someone or with a group or anything, you should still be self-reliant and self-sustainable on your own two feet if anything happens, right? Um, so that's what I adopted with Europe. And then I knew Africa was the big ticket item. Um, ever since I like heard the Cairo to Cape Town route that Mark Beaumont made famous, uh, I knew I wanted to yeah. alumni of the show. Ah, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Le another legend yeah. uh so once once i had kind of heard all about that i knew i wanted to try Cairo to cape town uh asked my boyfriend to join me on that one and uh that trip took five months eleven thousand kilometers we were stuck a few times that i'm sure we'll talk about with a military coup in sudan and we had the Tigray war in ethiopia um but i thought africa to answer your question i thought africa was the end and then I just felt this like tipping point of, I don't know why, but I think I still need to continue. Uh, and then in Botswana, we crossed paths, literally crossed paths with David and Caroline, who currently hold the Guinness Book World Record for the fastest married couple to have cycled the world. And they graciously stopped and kind of told us what the requirements were. And that's where I heard 29,000 kilometers cycle the world yeah so that's when i knew like okay light bulb went off maybe africa's not the end uh and that's when i started to like open the atlas again and look at okay where, well, where could i go if i have this many amount of kilometers left with the world being so open it's hard almost to choose a route or a way to do things how did you even land on on the route you chose on those two continents mm -hmm. well um, James, my partner, he's actually from New Zealand and we had planned to go to see his family, uh, in New Zealand for the holidays. So we actually just like, uh, said, well, where are we going anyways? Um, all right, we're headed to New Zealand. Why don't I do the South Island of New Zealand to, to utilize that as a warm up for Australia. And then, so all of these, by the way, were solo after Africa, James said, you know what, like cycling's for you. It's not necessarily for me. Why don't we use the rest of this year to 
um, tick off our boxes of what what both of us personally want to do. So I'm fortunate enough to be in a relationship where he really encourages uh, independent travel and independent experiences, right? Um, so I knew, okay, well, if I'm going to continue, I have to do it completely alone. Um, all right, so New Zealand, we're going there for the holidays. I'll do the South Island. And then across Australia, well, that was a definite. I definitely wanted to cross Australia because of Robin Davidson's book tracks. Um, there's also a film about it. So she walked across the outback with her camels and um, her stories really inspired me as a female explorer. So I knew I wanted to cross Australia. The only problem was that was in the heat of summer. <laughs> so that was not the best time to go, but I, I did it anyways. And I had only about 30 days up my sleeve for that one. And actually, funny enough, people don't know this, but after Australia, uh, we had set a date to go with uh, my partner's parents up to Nepal and show them some of our Nepal is one of our favorite countries in the world. We keep going back there for hikes. And so we actually did the Langtang Valley trek um, in Nepal after Australia. And so that was kind of like a, <laughs> like to your question, like I'll never... I'll never quite get away from hiking. It's always, right. you know, when people say, where's home? I almost want to say the trail. The trail. <laughs> um, it's true. It's just like home for me. So went and did a, a little trip in Nepal after Australia. And then I had 6,000 kilometers left. Um, and I knew I could either do South America or North America. Um, and I kind of, South America scared me terrified me because of the Andes and the high altitude and it was winter and I if anything I know to follow that feeling when you're scared of something and terrified you should probably explore yes. it yes that's what <laughs> led me to settling down actually um no I'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> hey sometimes Terrifying. that, can, that um, can be scary for a lot of people <laughs> yeah well it definitely was uh you know, it, it's you mentioned uh, the Robin's protege, Sophie Matterson, has been on the show too. I don't know if you ever heard of her. One of my favorite all time stories. And then it's overwhelming to, to talk about a three year experience. But what I want to ask is what I like, what I think so interesting about this is the self funded portion. Uh, how did you find ways to, to pay for this along the way? Because it was self supported and you were stopping when it made sense to work and whatnot. What, what, how were you finding those opportunities? What did that look like? I'm sure every one of them was different. <laughs> they were different. Um, for the most part, I actually stopped to work on a farm. Uh, I helped to manage a farm. And what's interesting is uh, a lot of people say, well, I, I want to do what you did, or I want to go on this big bike trip or even just travel to this country, but I don't have the, the money to do it. And I will say that when you calculate the, the average daily amount that you need, I mean, you just talked to Alistair, I'm sure he mentioned, if I remember from his books, what was it? Something like $5 a day and eating peanut butter sandwiches. And, you know, you find yeah. ways to I think I think inflation has pushed it to around eight dollars a day, but still, that that's pretty achievable on a bike. <laughs> so, absolutely, and that's that's exactly what I say. I say when you um, when you kind of average it out, like let's you know say I went to areas of Europe, but I also for the most part chose Africa, Asia, South America, you know, and you can average out to about ten dollars a day 
on living on a bicycle. Your accommodation is covered. You have a tent with you, right? You have your water and food with you. Um, you don't need to go to a restaurant. So I think that there's a lot, and your transportation is the big one, right? Like you're not paying for transportation because you're riding it. So when you take out all those factors, you're actually really traveling the world on $10 a day average. So when you do that math, you can very intentionally work for a purpose. So I did seasonal farm work uh, where I would work for a number of months, literally save up every penny and then travel again. So before all this, I was able to save that way uh, and do Vietnam, um, Europe, Africa, and then in between Africa and New Zealand, which I would call the second portion of this trip, New Zealand, Australia, South America, between Africa and New Zealand, I had to um, work again and save up every penny. And when you have that, like when you keep looking at the map, when you're working through logistics, when you're kind of visualizing where you're about to go, it makes work that much more enjoyable because you know you're working towards something, towards making something happen. Um, so that's pretty much how I did it, as, as well as, you know, writing some articles along the way. Um, I really tried to step away from filmmaking, which is so ironic now, because I made a film of this journey. But I tried as much as I could to step away from producing. Just, just <laughs> yeah, exactly. And stepping away, that is. No, in a, in a, for the, you felt it the best way possible. Uh, what did you notice seeing so many corners of the world? Were there any themes that were common about this human experience or were they just vastly, vastly different in every facet? Absolutely. I think there were more commonalities than there were differences, right? And that's what you hear a lot of travelers talk about, but you don't understand it until you really travel it and see it for yourself and experience it for yourself. Um, I will tell you that, just on a whole, the world was uh, predominantly friendly, welcoming, generous, good, right? There's, certain, there's a certain depiction of the world that we see on the news. It's completely different when you get on the ground. Um, people were so kind and welcoming. I mean, let's just take Sudan, for instance. Going through a military coup, um, political fragility, at its finest when we were there, but the, the locals were so welcoming, right? Like, I mean, they would give all of their food, not just some of their food to us, all of their food, all of their water that they were making for dinner. And we're like, no, please. And they're like, no, this is how we treat travelers. We want you to have this. We want you to accept the gift. People were just so helpful. Uh, and I even noticed a difference between how they would, be more helpful when I was alone and solo, as opposed to when I was with James um, and in a, in a couple traveling in a couple, they think, you know, usually people think, oh, you've got everything covered. But when you're alone, uh, you know, especially women would, would take protection over me, would have this responsibility to help me. And that's what I tell a lot of people when they talk about, uh, well, how, how did you feel solo? Wasn't it dangerous? Wasn't it terrifying? Um, I usually give that example of locals were actually more helpful when I was by myself. Um, but I think just as a whole, you know, humans are good. They mean well uh, on every corner of the planet, no matter what culture. And also people are people just want to be happy. People just want to be with their loved ones. I mean, people want to help. That's one thing I really 
I, I really, um, kind of took to heart was how, um, yeah, just helping people are to a stranger, to a traveler, um, no matter what corner of the world I was in. So in Australia, I had a couple who changed their route so that they could meet me at every place that I camped, right? Just to be able to give me a hot dog and a cold water, uh, going across the Nullarbor plain. <laughs> um, you know, Sudan, we had someone take us in and invite, invite us to have a great traditional breakfast with his family. Uh, we were given like numerous uh, accommodation. Well, it's 12 o'clock. Well, why don't you come stay with us? You know, why don't you like, don't just take the meal. Why don't you stay with us tonight? And we're like, no, we still have to keep riding. Um, I think just the, the graciousness of humanity uh, really shone through. That's great to hear. You know, that is something we hear a lot, but that's something I like to reconfirm every time we get the chance to talk to a, a world traveler uh, is like, hey, is the world still more helpful than the news says it is? And, and it sounds like based on your experience, it is. That's wonderful. Uh, did you have any random, you know, I, I know for a lot of people that put themselves out there like this for, for that long mm -hmm. of a period of time, sometimes they have a random encounter, a, a connection, a coincidental, like seeing your childhood friend out there that you just never thought you'd ever see again any, any random coincidental encounters like that like running into your mom's best friend or anything I just I don't know why I don't ever ask that question but I, I figured I'd ask you no I'm just I'm, I'm actually looking at my globe to see right now uh I don't I don't think there ever was any random encounters but you always find you always find uh, the people who are closest to you, uh, the, the spirit of them and someone else they meet along the way, right? So for instance, I called the uh, people I was just uh, referencing, my Australian family. They became my, uh, I don't know, my parents, my aunt and uncle. They were probably like an aunt and uncle to me. Um, and I still stay in touch with them. And they really almost adopted me for those few weeks across, you know, this is across the Nullarbor. So this is one of the harshest desert environments in all of planet earth. And this is a Nullarbor, um, I'm pretty sure means treeless. So you have no shelter, no shade. Um, and the winds can really kick up there, which is really dangerous when it comes to combining heavy winds and heat. So like that family for me, that couple was my Australian aunt and uncle, you know, um, I think that you find, you might not see familiar faces, but you find familiar encounters along the way for sure. What place would you say was most surprisingly enjoyable or, or beautiful? Maybe because, you know, there's, uh, I don't know about you, but for me, when I sit there and stare at a map, my mind automatically creates a picture of what I'm going to see. And oftentimes the reality is so different, so different than what I thought I would see, even based on pictures. So it's, you know, it's always a pleasant surprise, usually what, what you end up seeing with your own eyes uh, on a place that you previously studied. Did you have an experience like that with any, anywhere that, that you remember? Absolutely. I think the first one that comes to mind is Namibia uh, at the bottom of Africa, just north of South Africa. And I think Namibia is not on a lot of people's radar uh, for some niche world travelers. It's definitely on their radar because it's a super unique 
uh, ecosystem and landscape. And it has, um, it has ethnicities that still uh, dread their hair with clay. Uh, and then it also has a, a very uh, German town in the middle of, you know, in the bottom of Africa. It's a very German town where you can get German brats and beer. Um, so you have like those stark differences there. You also have uh, a lot of the most biodiverse areas. Um, they have an incredible national park there, a lot of wild cheetahs there, uh, but the, oh, and the Skeleton Coast, of course, is why Namibia is very famous uh, for surfers and a, a lot of the shipwrecks on the Skeleton Coast. Uh, and then the big, I think one of them is called the, the Big Daddy Sand Dune, right? So you've got some of the largest sand dunes that then crash into the, uh, the ocean. But for me, Namibia really sticks out when people ask that question because uh, of Deadle, which is this like salt pan with these dead trees ever seen photos of it it has a you know a, a white salt earth with dead trees and then uh these huge orange sand dunes and a cobalt sky and it's just this otherworldly uh feeling of where am i is this planet earth and the only other time i felt that way with a, a landscape and a vista is in bolivia's salt flats the world's largest salt flats called salar de uyuni and that was so expansive and depth perception defying. I couldn't see the, the next day's destination ahead of me. It was just all this blanket of white, right? And it looks like snow in the photos, but it, it's just jarring because it's all salt. Um, so those are two, I guess, that really stick out. Was there a place that maybe didn't live up to, to the expectation? Maybe it was just busy or, or whatnot and if we don't feel like diving into kind of that side of things, I, I get it too. No, yeah, it's it's good to ask because I think there's a different beauty to things depending on how you look at them. I'll tell you when you look at when you look at photos of the pyramids of Giza, you don't see the thousands of people in the crowds uh, just to the left of them or just just behind you or you know they're still um, digging at, digging and excavating things too so it's like a there's a usually um, a guarded off area where they're working on that archaeologists are still working on that area right um, so that's one place that I think comes to mind um, we had to get there I, th I want to say it opens bright and early we had to get there first thing in order to get the iconic shots and enjoy a little bit of the silence before the crowds. Um, and I will tell you, that's sort of what I expected with Machu Picchu when I went over there in South America, in Peru. Uh, and that wasn't the, I mean, there were of course crowds at Machu Picchu, but I kind of walked in there and got this very like powerful feeling at Machu Picchu. Um, so I was pleasantly surprised uh, that that wasn't the case there, that there it wasn't just overrun by crowds. I think they try to mitigate how many people can be in there at once, since obviously it's quite a trek up by either walking or, or bus to get up there. But uh, yeah, a lot of those UNESCO World Heritage sites, that sometimes is the case, right? The photos, you don't see the crowds. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. I am a proud user of Manscaped. They are the revolutionary hair trimmer 
that a lot of men use. And our friends over at Menscape have been working night and day to bring you below-the-waist grooming experience like none other with their brand new Lawn Mower 5.0 Ultra. It's the next generation of trimmer with interchangeable blade heads for whatever shave your mind can imagine. Is it the biggest technological advancement of all time? I think it is. And that's why you need to get it and upgrade your grooming game to the Ultra Sphere this year by going to manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping with the code ADVENTURE at checkout. You can take it on the go. This puppy comes with a travel case, travel lock feature to avoid accidentally powering on or off. It's actually really handy. One of my headlamps just died the other night because it turned on by itself in my backpack. And speaking of lights, it has dual LED spotlights just like your regular lawnmower. So like I said, get 20% off plush free shipping with the code ADVENTURE at manscaped.com. It's very high tech for very low places. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Was there a place that maybe wasn't on your radar beforehand? This might have been Namibia as far as like some of those iconic things to see. That you just didn't, like maybe it was a World Heritage site or some sort of canyon, something that you just didn't even know exist beforehand. I I found that, you know, if it's not on like A or B list of places to go see somewhere, uh, you might come across it on a bike and just realize it's an amazing, amazing experience. Mm. I think that uh, biking wise, the Elephant Highway in Botswana doesn't get enough praise. And maybe that's for a good reason. You know, I like that it was um, uncrowded. We were the only cyclists that we saw there. But we crossed the border from Zambia into Botswana. And immediately we saw a family of elephants. Um, we were seeing elephants for about 200, 250 kilometers. That's the stretch of the Elephant Highway. And it is one of those, for anyone who's done the Cairo to Cape Town route by bicycle, by car, and <laughs> walking, <laughs> um, in any capacity, coming across that elephant highway is something that's on the highlight list for sure. But I don't think a lot of people talk about it. And maybe that's for a good reason to keep it unpopulated. Um, but that's one of the largest concentrations of wild elephants on the planet. And uh, it was just, um, you know, because you can go into a lot of the, you can do a safari, um, Masai Mara or Serengeti, a lot of the incredible wildlife um, national reserves in Africa, but I didn't realize that you could just on the road, on the public road, be that close to African wild elephants. Uh, and of course we were very respectful. We would always keep our distance or if they were ever spooked because animals don't know, animals in general don't know what to make of bicycles, right? We've all had a dog like lash out at us on a bicycle. They don't like the spinning wheels. Well, imagine a, a colossal, um, African elephant. And not only that, but it's maybe a mom protecting her young. That's not going to end pretty for you. So we would always wait for a car to come by, you know, sometimes waiting for 15 minutes for a car to come so that we could use it as a, as a barrier, um, just to respect the elephants. What's one of your favorite stories to tell about the experience uh, that illustrates a lesson you'd like folks to take home about what it means to travel around the world. Mm, okay. Um, so an illustrative 
uh, an illustrative experience of of this entire journey for me, I can think of two. So I'll touch briefly on the first one. Uh, we leave from Cairo in Egypt and we're trying to make it down to Cape Town, right? Well, we hit our second country of Sudan and we're going through the Sahara and all of a sudden our phone service shuts off and we didn't think too much of it, but getting closer to Khartoum, the capital, we started to hear from locals that the military had taken over in a coup. Um, so what that means is they had kidnapped the president and they had taken over the airwaves. So no messages or phone calls were able to go in or out of the country. Uh, we weren't able to hear news from around the world, talk to our loved ones, et cetera. And only one uh, TV channel was actually playing and that was the military. So not only that, but all the businesses in Khartoum, the city capital were closed. The airport was closed, which was important at the time because we could not cross the land border of Ethiopia because of the Tigray War. We had to fly from Khartoum to Addis Ababa. So we had to wait for the airport to open. And that to me taught me <laughs> that you can have a goal. You can, you can try to be in control, but at the end of the day in life and in this adventure, you have to surrender control that there's going to be the unknown and you need to just allow the experience to happen. Um, essentially, that's what Africa taught me is that you do everything you can to prepare, but then you let go of control and you let the trip teach you something. Um, so that's the first one. And then the second one was a, what, what did you do? If you don't mind me asking, Yeah, <laughs> like, that's kind of a, it's not like a, well, you know, car broke down we just gotta you, know, you gotta get this is a coup it could be very dangerous like what what was the what did it end up happening well and it did uh just so you know the fragility of politics in sudan uh as of right now or recently um did get dangerous so you're absolutely right the potential for it getting dangerous when we were caught in this coup was a po absolutely a possibility um we stayed patient we listened to locals. That was a big one. Uh, they said, it's okay. Stay in Khartoum. Just go to, there were like three shops open. So we had somewhere to get food and water. Uh, we found a hotel that was open. A lot of hotels were not open or didn't want to accept foreigners because of the situation. So we had shelter. We had food. We had water. Uh, you know, it was, I don't know, 50, it was a hundred and 15, 110 degrees there. Um, and, you know, power was going out all the time. So talk about no Wi-Fi, but then we had power going in and out. So there was no fan uh, a lot of the time. Like we had a, a, a dose of reality really for what a lot of the world, the rest of the world goes through on a regular basis. Um, we stayed patient. You know, my partner, James, he's pretty funny. So he was like, he was like, you know what, like carefree kind of personality. He's like, worst case, we can open a, a tea shop here in Sudan. <laughs> and I, I'm not, I'm not on that side of it. I'm more like, I can think of a few goal. worse things, but if that's right, the worst. There's, there's worse things. Uh, but he always puts things into perspective. It's like, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world. We'll, we'll figure it out. And within a week and a half, the airport opened, and we immediately um, found some bike boxes packed up our stuff and and got a flight to Addis Ababa so uh, it worked out but I unfortunately know another bicycle traveler um, from Australia she actually got caught in Sudan this year and things got a lot worse so she actually had to get evacuated to oh, Europe yeah. that was real real fast and um, 
thankfully we didn't have that happen, but the quick, you know, the, the fragility of everything and how, how quick it can happen. Um, just really, that's what, what, um, I don't know. It was a whole new perspective, right. Of what most of the world has to deal with. Is it, um, what, what's a story that didn't make the film and that you maybe don't get the chance to share as much about just because, you know, it's, it's hard to pack three years of life and in that <laughs> much life, mm-hmm. at least two, that's two decades worth of life right there packed into an hour long talk. One that when I'm on these tours, I will mention uh, because I did not get it on film, unfortunately, was this one always piques everyone's curiosities is we were we were in Kenya and we're riding along and we see a lot of Samburu tribesmen uh, from that ethnicity and uh, we saw a mom and her young teenage boy and as we ride past them you know they're probably like whoa uh, we've never seen anyone on bicycles let alone these people you know two long-haired long blonde bicycle travelers right, uh, right. Yeah, and going right past their village, and the young boy actually picks up his spear and chucks it at us, and it came eerily close to me. I'm talking like three or four feet, and just goes ding, 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 and I was so just taken aback that he just chucked the spear at us, you know, but, um, and I was about to turn around and give him a piece of my mind, <laughs> but uh Jim was like, you know, let's, let's just keep, keep biking. Um, and I realized, you know, he went and he hid the, uh, the teenager. He went and kind of scurried behind his mom and you could tell he was embarrassed. Um, so I think it was like the equivalent of, you know, a young kid picking up a rock and throwing it at a stranger or something. Uh, but his rock just happened to be a spear. So that's something that didn't make the film. And then uh, just to note on the Elephant Highway, another thing that didn't make the film is the night before entering Botswana, we actually camped out next to a South African family. And the dad of the family said, you know, it's all good going and biking on the elephant highway or going into these wildlife reserves. But the second that you see a lone uh, wild African elephant male in heat, and you'll know, right? How do you know? Uh, The second, well, okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So the second you see that, you do not want to be around because you could get killed. You could get ambushed. And sure enough, what happened two days later, uh, Jim was about, I don't know, 20 feet, 30 feet in front of me. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, um, out of the forest, this big gray boulder darts for Jim. And it was a a lone solitary um, African elephant in heat. And he went straight for Jim. And thankfully it ended up being a mock charge, but I did not get that on film because I honestly thought that was the last I would see of my partner. Honestly. I mean, it was the scariest moment of my life as if my, as if my adrenals weren't already through the roof. (laughs) Um, But it was a mock charge. So about 10 feet away from Jim, the elephant stopped, turned around and, and just trotted back into the forest. We got very lucky. Would you say that was your closest call? Uh, sadly, I wouldn't. Um, look, people always want to know what was the most dangerous thing that happened on this whole world tour or in Africa, and they expect lions or um, you know something like an animal encounter or a, uh, a thief or bandits. And you know what? 
yeah, or the spear. Uh, but that's not the answer. The the truthful answer is the vehicles. Absolutely. It's the same answer as if you and I hopped on our bike and went into a city center right now in Florida. It's the same answer. No matter where you are in the world, vehicles are the scariest thing. And I don't even want to count. I, I could not even count on two hands how many scarily close encounters I had with vehicles and especially trucks. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's dangerous. And if there's one thing that I kind of think my lucky stars on, it's that all those roads that I traveled, um, you know, it all was all right at the end because <laughs> vehicles is, are no joke. That's the real danger. That's the real danger. And, uh, my last cross country ride 2020, I got hit by a F-150 and a hit and run. Yeah, the real danger. That's kind of comforting in a way that the only danger is the same danger. If you're if you're comfortable out on a neighborhood ride or riding around your city, training or whatever you do, enjoying that, that's about as dangerous as it gets anywhere. As far as uh, vehicles, it's the same factor. It's not the lions. It's not the bears. It's not the the people. It's it's vehicles. So if you're comfortable with that, you, I mean, maybe you're comfortable enough to ride around the world. What what do you think? One of the lasting kind of impressions that this experience will have on Mackenzie? What do you think will be different about you in that amount of time versus having never done this? Hmm. It's, it's really hard to pick just one uh, because as I was finishing this tour, I finished in Bogota, Colombia, all the lessons started flooding in and there was a reason for that. So in South America, I speak broken Spanish, um, survival Spanish, and I can't get too deep with conversation right so it's essentially on a shallow level uh, because of my level of Spanish um, but that ended up being uh, beneficial in a lot of ways uh, I had to have a lot of um, very healthy uh, conversations with myself inner dialogue became a huge lesson for me um, self-belief having to become your own best friend and having to choose a hundred percent of your thoughts be positive and just, you know, South America was three months of me being very much by myself, um, but in a way, you know, not, not lonely. Like you still feel very empowered um, being in your own company. And so that was the end for me, was these three months of very much being in my own head uh, and having to have daily healthy dialogue with myself. Um, and I think that's what I'll remember the most. And that's why a lot of these, these lessons have come flooding in towards the end in South America, because I'll be honest with you, Mason, I didn't know if I would be content at the end of this. Um, that's what a lot of adventurers say, right? Like, how will I know when I can be at peace and content with my trip? And when I knew was the last country of Colombia, and I did not intend for this aha moment to happen but I started crossing paths with Venezuelan refugees in Colombia we're all familiar with the Venezuelan refugee crisis and a lot of them are walking their way down into Colombia and hitchhiking and you know that's human powered travel essentially you know I see people around my age with young kids on two arms and you know luggage and walking their way towards a better life and for me, this light bulb went off of, okay, I'm doing human powered travel and I'm selectively 
kind of, I don't like to call it selective suffering, but it's a, it's a selective adventure, right? And for them, it's unselective. This is just walking themselves and, and their family towards a better life. So the appreciation for the fact that uh, my passport allows me to do this, that I have the physical capabilities, that I have the means to be able to travel the world by bicycle, that was that last kind of solidifying point that I needed to be super content. And um, I hit my finish line and was just so appreciative of this, this privilege that I have to be able to do an adventure like this. Mm, that is an awesome legacy. Do you miss it? You know, I, I do miss every, I mean, I miss the lifestyle of travel and I miss the daily purpose. I think this is the, the part that after a big multi-year or colossal trip, whether it's a through hike or a bikepacking journey or sailing around the world or whatever it might be, right? You're slowly day by day chipping away to be productive in order to have this goal, right? So you're, you have this ingrained purpose in your daily movement. You are quite literally moving closer to your goal every day. Um, and then to stop all of a sudden is that's tough. And that's where like post hike blues come in or post trip blues. Um, and I do miss it. I miss that purpose, but I've found that when you can take that sense of purpose and put it into something else or take the sense of the unknown and put it into something else that helps you progress to the next chapter of life. Right. So I'm always happy to go back and revisit that chapter of cycling the world and talk about it and think more on it. But I'm also, I'm also flipping a new chapter and my new uncomfortable is this film that I'm touring. I'm doing a lot of speaking uh, engagements about my trip and then I'm writing a book that I hope to publish next year. So these are my new uncomfortable. This is my new purpose. It's my new adventure. Um, so I do miss the past chapter, but I'm ready to kind of progress into the next one. That's fantastic. Well, you know, keep telling the story because just like you mentioned, if it hadn't been for others sharing their experience, you, you might not be on this one yourself. Last just simple piece of advice to to get more adventure in your life because you know alistair talks about this a lot you guys i i'm just not going to have another four-year window in my life or you know i don't foresee one there might be but i don't really want that right now but how do i get more adventured so that's a question he always seems to answer what would you say as far as uh how can you introduce more adventure into your life hmm well i think that adventure is is an overarching concept that um, it doesn't just have to be human powered travel or travel at all, right? Um, physically, it can be mental, it can be, I kind of define adventure as that feeling of the unknown. So how, I guess my, my final piece would be, how can you push yourself to experience more of the unknown? Um, when people ask on this journey, weren't you afraid? Weren't you scared? And my answer is absolutely every single day. Um, but it's about that healthy relationship with fear. And it's about this concoction of being terrified and exhilarated. And that's usually what happens when you embrace the unknown. And it's the, it's those situations that allow you to reveal your, your deeper purpose and your deeper potential. So. I guess my way of seeing adventure is how can you experience the unexpected? 
and push yourself more to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, and that can be in a multitude of facets, right? It can be making a new friend group. It can be doing a new activity. Um, it can be cycling the world. Uh, but how can you be more adventurous in daily life? Kind of like Alistair says, for me, I take that as how can I keep pursuing the unknown and keep pushing myself to kind of find new layers of who I am and what I'm capable of. And I think that when you do that, I do talk about this a bit in my film, but I think that when you do that, you're shining a light, right? And if you kind of take care of your, your light and you try to push yourself as much as possible, you're going to, in effect, do that to other people around you. And then if, every, if everyone kind of does that, it will make our world a better place. Um, so I think that it has, again, to a ripple effect, it has a ripple effect. If you take care of, of making sure that you're pursuing your unknown as much as possible and pushing yourself, it's going to affect those around you. Oh, great words of wisdom, McKinsey. Uh, I'm sure there's just a billion more stories you could tell. And, uh, I hope this was, you know, fun for you. I really appreciate you coming on and telling your story. Thank you so much, Mason. I'm, I'm honored to have been interviewed after Alistair. Thanks for that. <laughs> Literally, like the same day. So awesome. Too yeah. good. All right. Talk soon. All right. All have right. A, uh, Feel better. I hope you yeah, feel better. Yeah. <laughs> Safe travels. All right. Cheers. All right. See you. Thanks, Mason. Bye. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.